You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, today we continue our series through the book of Exodus, uh, but with a little twist. Uh, The story thus far has led us here to Mount Sinai, where the presence of God descends in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and a trumpet blast so that God can make a covenant with his newly delivered people. And the rest of Exodus is devoted to the terms of that covenant, the laws and statutes that were to govern Israel's life as God's holy nation, as well as some narrative sections detailing how the people respond. In fact, Israel will be in and around Sinai for the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first half of Numbers, learning from Yahweh what he expects of them as his people. And Exodus 20, of course, records the giving of the Ten Commandments, or literally the Ten Words. To this point, um, as pastors, we've been moving through Exodus at a pace of about a chapter or two each week. But for the next ten weeks, we're going to slow down considerably, and we're going to focus each week on one of the commandments, except next week, Pastor Jonathan's going to do both the first and the second together. And we're going to do this for for three main reasons, one rooted in the Bible itself and two rooted in our own contemporary context. The biblical reason is simply that the 10 words are foundational for the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the covenant and the law. God gives them here first in Exodus 20, and they have a kind of preeminence in Israel, much like the Bill of Rights does for us as Americans. Many of Israel's laws can be traced back and tied back in some way or another to these 10. So in order to better understand the law in general, say in Exodus 21 to 23, later in this semester, or to understand Leviticus and Deuteronomy and even the prophets, we're going to lay a solid foundation here with the 10 commandments. So that's the biblical reason. But in terms of our contemporary context, one reason for focusing on the 10 words is because of the evangelistic challenge we face in the 21st century. Uh, recently, I was on an airplane and had a three-hour conversation with a man about Christianity. Uh, he was a professing Christian of sorts, he had Christian background, he still attended church every now and then, maybe Christmas, Easter, that kind of thing. And we were having a really good, fruitful conversation about church and about faith, about how we did things, what we were like, what the churches he, was, he went to were like, things like that, until the question of biblical morality came up. And then our great conversation turned into a great debate. And it became clear that while this man wanted to maintain some kind of connection to Jesus and to Christianity, he had serious issues with the Bible's teaching on morality. Some parts he liked, some parts he did not. And he felt free to discard the parts that he did not. It was basically a grab bag approach to the whole question. So it wasn't like he was in favor of total lawlessness. He didn't think that anybody should be able to do whatever they wanted. He insisted certain things were right, certain things were wrong, but he just didn't want the Bible to be the the whole Bible to tell us what those things were. So, naturally, I pointed that out. Okay, so the difference between us is that you don't want the whole Bible to tell you what God expects. You want to be able to pick and choose from the Bible the parts that you want to still apply. And what do you think he said to that? He said, well, look, we all pick and choose. We all pick and choose. Uh, 
And he asked the same sort of question that I suspect many of you have been asked, or maybe you yourselves have asked this question, which is, for example, why, why do we insist, why do you insist, this was his question to me, on the abiding relevance of biblical laws, say, about sexual conduct, but you feel free to eat shellfish and pork, even though the book of Leviticus says you're not supposed to do that. Aren't you, as a conservative Bible-believing Christian, just picking and choosing as well? You're just picking and choosing different ones, and I'm picking and choosing. We're all picking and choosing, and so that's, what, that's the only thing that we've got to do is pick and choose. Aren't we all being hypocrites? Now, that question, and one like it, is often a barrier to faith for some unbelievers. Sometimes it's the actual barrier. Like, if, if you were to answer that question and help them to understand that, that would actually move them closer to accepting Jesus. Other times, that question is a smokescreen for the real barrier, which is that they want to do what they want to do, and the apparent hypocrisy of Christians when it comes to obeying all of the Bible is a convenient excuse for dismissing the faith altogether. So that's one reason we want to focus here on the law, is we want to get straight on what does God expect, but these types of ethical questions aren't simply pressing because of those outside the faith. They're pressing for the sake of discipleship in the church itself. Questions about morality, about the law of God, are sometimes part of the reason why Christians drift away from the faith. That same apparent inconsistency, what do we obey, what do we not obey, make it easier for people to drift away from Jesus, to set aside his teachings, to go our own way. And so I think, I think that ethical instruction, meaning teaching about what God expects of us in our daily lives, is a crucial challenge for Christian discipleship in the 21st century. Because um, we can't assume that people entering our church or entering the faith have a common understanding of what God expects of us. 200 years ago, 100 years ago, 60 years ago, you might be able to assume a lot of common ground between Christians and non-Christians on the question of right and wrong. Even people who rejected the doctrines of the Bible, so think like Thomas Jefferson, Okay, people like that, even those that rejected the doctrines of the Bible, the theology of the Bible, they embrace the moral teaching of the Bible, but now it's the Bible's moral teaching that is confusing to people or that is viewed as inconsistent, sometimes even absurd and oppressive. So in many ways, our situation is more like the early centuries of the church. Because when pagans, so when Jews converted to Christianity in the early days of the church, there was a lot of shared understanding of what God expects. The debates were over things like circumcision and kosher keeping, the specific distinctives of the Jewish law. But when Gentiles would convert, as more and more pagans came to Christ, pastors and elders had to devote a lot more time to teaching people how this God that was unlike the gods that they had worshiped, how does this God expect them to live? And so you see this in a lot of early Christian literature. Lots of teaching about the two ways to live, the way of life and the way of death. And the way of life has lots of do's and don'ts. Love, your, love God, love your neighbor, don't murder, don't commit fornication, don't steal, don't practice magic, don't be greedy, don't slander, don't be double-tongued. There was lots of, in the early church, discipleship had a lot of teaching about how we are to live, what it means to follow Jesus in our conduct, because people just didn't know. And there was a large gulf between the way of the world and the way of Christ. And that's the same way today. So for this initial message, I've got two goals. First, I want to make some general comments here about law. Like what is law? Like when we talk about, we're going to be spending time in the law. What is law in general? So kind of widen back. And then I want to 
move in and, and look at the Ten Commandments as a whole and make some basic observations uh, that will help set the stage for these coming messages on each of the individual ones. So, law in general. So, when, when I say the word law, my guess is that you immediately think of a rule to obey. That's what a law is. A law is a rule that you have to obey. Think of obligations, usually obligations that are imposed on us from outside, like traffic laws or criminal laws or things like that. But as theologians have discussed law throughout the history of the church, they said law is actually a bigger category than that. It's, it's not just laws imposed from outside, it's laws and principles from inside, uh, things that are in our very nature. So step back and consider law in its broadest sense. So at the macro level, what's a, what's a law? A law is simply something that determines what a particular thing does or should do. That's all it is. Something, some principle, some standard, some aspect, some, some power that determines what this thing should do or does do. It orders and directs and guides and restrains a particular thing in a particular way. And so when we talk about law, theologians often stop at, start, stop at, the, start at the highest level with God himself. They'll begin with the character of God his inherent perfection that guides and directs him in everything that he does. It's what determines his action. So God, there's a law that we call the character of God, the eternal law of his character. And that's the highest form of law. That's the ultimate law is the law that is God himself and that directs him. And then all other forms of law sort of come down from that on our different ways that 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 law of God's character is reflected and expressed in different areas. And so think, just think with me about this. Uh, For example, when we apply that eternal law to nature, like the non-rational, the physical world, what do we get? Well, we get the laws of nature, the laws of natural phenomena, like gravity, or photosynthesis, or instinct in animals, or digestion in your stomach. Those those natural laws, those are a reflection of the eternal character of God, the consistency of God. There's a guide or a rule or a principle that directs those behaviors. It's interesting, when you read theologians on this, uh, older theologians, they'll often say, the next law you should talk about is angelic law. You ever think about angelic law? I've never thought about angelic law. And they actually say, that's good, because we don't know anything about it. Okay, but we do know that angels are subject to God and therefore there must be some principle or standard or rule that they are guided by. There must have been something that Lucifer violated when he fell from heaven. So there's some angelic law. We just don't know much about it. We don't need to spend a whole lot of time thinking about it, but it's there. There's a reflection of God's character applied to the angels. And then they move down to human nature. There's a law of human nature. That's the third that's embedded in creation. This is the law that governs us by nature, the law that's written on every heart. It's, it's God, think of it this way, it's God's design for us that's embedded in our very nature, in our conscience, and everybody everywhere, all human beings have access to it simply because they're human beings. They don't need to see it written anywhere. They have it written on their hearts. It's in their conscience. It's why in the book of Romans, Paul gives this long list of sins like covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife. And then he says about all people everywhere, they know God's righteous decree that those who do those things are worthy of death and they do them anyway. And you say, how how do they know? Because it's written on their heart. 
They know that those things are wrong. All of us know that God's character is opposed to them. We do them anyway. We violate the law of human nature, but we have access to it simply because we're human and God has made his character known to us in creation. Okay? So, take stock. Eternal law of God's character, and that gets uh, embedded or worked into creation in three different areas. The non, the physical world, like gravity, stuff like that. Angels, there's an angelic law. We don't know anything about it. And then the law of human nature that's a part of our very nature. Those are three ways that God's law is, a, is built into creation. Now, on top of that, there's another kind of law. All of these are embedded in creation. But on top of that, we can talk about the law of redemption or the gospel. This is the kind of law that directs us how we can be made right with God. We don't know this law by nature. It's not written on your heart. You can only know it if God reveals it to you in a special way. Like like the law of nature, you can look inside in your conscience and you can see it, but you need a preacher to give you the law of redemption, the law by which you're saved. In order to know the gospel, we need a preacher. It's good news from outside, not simply knowledge of our own conscience. Law of nature, law of human nature gives us bad news. This is all of the ways that you failed. You violated the character of God. The law of redemption comes from outside and says, this is how you may be saved and made right with God. Okay, so that makes sense. So now we've got eternal law of God's character, three ways that that law is worked into creation itself, one way that's like a special redemption from outside, and now there's two more kinds I want to to mention. One is prudential law. This is my term for it. And prudential law is law that applies in a particular circumstance, and it's a matter of wisdom. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Kevin preached on Jethro. Remember this? Jethro's advice to Moses. He said, hey, man, you're going to kill yourself if you keep trying to judge everybody. So you need to have some guy. you need to have you, and then there's guys under you, and then there's guys under them, and work your way. And, and what's he doing? Now, if Moses took Jethro's advice and implemented it, which we think he did, what's he doing? That's prudential law. Like that's, that's one way to do it. It's a good way to do it, but it's not the only way to do it. Did, did, how many people did Moses need to have? There was wisdom that needed to go into that. But once he established it, then that would be the law for, for Israel, but how we're gonna do it. That would be true of like traffic laws. Think about traffic laws. Traffic laws are not embedded in the nature of creation. We were just in England and we drove on the left side of the road, terrified the entire time. Like I was white knuckling it the whole way. Like this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. But which side of the road? We just need to do something. We need to have some kind of agreement that, hey, everybody's, this is when, this is the side of the road you drive on. This is when you stop. This is when you go. All of those kind of laws. Traffic laws are prudential laws. Those laws aren't universal. They can be changed. So that's another kind of law. And then a final kind is symbolic law. These again are laws. They're not rooted in nature but they're designed to teach us and instruct us in some way. So circumcision is an example of symbolic law. Baptism, symbolic law. The Lord's table, symbolic law. They're not rooted in human nature itself, but are intended to represent and remind us of what God has done in history. So again, this is just trying to get the big picture of law. Law of God's character, three types of law in creation, natural law or law of uh, natural phenomena, angelic law, law of human nature. Then you have the law of redemption, which is a special kind that saves us. And then prudential law, like traffic laws and symbolic law, like baptism. Now, 
What happens is all of those different kinds of laws can be combined in various ways and then established as a law code. And you can have human law codes and you can have divine law codes. A human law code, that's like the laws of the United States. Or it's like our church bylaws. Our, our constitution is we've taken law, the, all of those different kinds, we've combined them together in various ways, and we said, this is how we're going to run things. If, you're, if your company has a code of conduct, that's, that's a human published law code for your company that applies just in that context. Then you have divine um, law codes like the law of Moses or the Sermon on the Mount. These, these type of things are, are basically a combination where everything gets pulled together. So now this is where it gets really important okay, as we move now to talk about the law of Moses in particular. Mos- the, the law of Moses is a published divine law code. And that's really important for us as we think about how we as Christians come to it. The law of Moses is a covenant for the people of Israel in a particular time and place. It's a covenant from Exodus until Jesus comes. It's God's law for God's people, but only in a particular era of redemptive history. And this means that as Christians, we are absolutely not under the Mosaic law, including, this is now follow me here, including the Ten Commandments. Now, we're not under it as a covenant. It's not the law that's over us. It was a covenant for a different era of history. Now, you immediately have a question. So does that mean we can commit idolatry? We can steal? We can bear fault witness? No, because those aspects of the law are rooted in and founded upon that law of nature, that law of human nature, and that's binding on all of us still. So think of it like this, okay? I used England a second ago about the traffic laws. Okay, the United States has laws against stealing. England also has laws against stealing. But if you were to steal something, would you be violating English law? No, because you're not in England. You're here. You would be tried in an American court by an American jury and sent to an American prison. The English law, even though it's the so, so you can have laws that show up in the, like that are similar UK law and American law, but you're not under English law. In the same way, the laws that we're under as Christians can be similar to the laws that the Jews were under in some respects, but they're not the same. We're not under the Mosaic law. We're under Christ. We're under grace. And I'll say more about that in a minute. So nevertheless, nevertheless, so now come to Moses. It's not, it's not over you like a covenant. You're not under Moses. But the Mosaic law is still scripture, and according to 2 Timothy, it's good for you. It's profitable for you. It's useful for instructing and equipping you in how to live. We ought to meditate and reflect upon the law of Moses so that we can grow in knowledge of God. And as we do, then we can take those different kinds of law I mentioned before, and we we can look at the law of Moses in a particular way, and we can see different layers in it. Okay, so different layers of the laws of Moses. Here's one layer. There is a layer in the law of Moses that is totally founded on that universal law of human nature. It's universal, it's unchangeable, it's always there. So don't murder and don't steal have always been requirements for human beings. This is important. It's not like, okay, when God wrote the laws on human tablets, he wasn't giving them new information. It wasn't like, hey, murder's totally cool, and then Moses comes down the mountain and they're like, oh, so we gotta stop that. We didn't know. 
That's not how it works. Murder was always a violation of God's character. It was always a violation of human nature. And so the sixth commandment simply republishes that law where people can read it so that they don't forget. We're prone to ignore the law. We're prone to disobey it. And so God, in the law of Moses, wrote it down with his own finger. And so that layer of the Mosaic law is still binding upon us, not because we're under the law of Moses, but because we're human because we're made in God's image. And theologians will often call this the moral layer of the law. Okay, that's one layer. Here's another layer in the law of Moses. There's a layer of the law that's not founded on human nature at all, but is instead founded on symbolism. So the symbolic law, laws about circumcision, or about clean and unclean animals, or about sacrifices, those all are the the symbolic layer of the law. And that layer is changeable. We see it change in the Bible itself. Eating pork was once contrary to God's law for his people. Couldn't do it. Now, it's not. Jesus has declared all foods clean. At one time, if you sinned, you had to kill a goat and go to a temple to be made right with God. Now you don't. And theologians say this layer of the law is called the ceremonial layer because it has to do with the ceremonies of Israel, the symbolic or the ceremonial. Now, there's a third layer. This is the final one, okay? That's the applications of the law of human nature in a particular context. This is that prudential law. A lot of the Old Testament law looks like this. If your oxen breaks out and it gores someone, here's what you have to do. Or if you steal an ox and then you sell it, then you have to pay it back five times. You've got to pay the guy that you stole it from five oxen. Now, that aspect of the Mosaic law often contains particular penalties and sanctions for disobedience. And that layer doesn't directly apply to us because we're not under Moses. But it's still an example and a model for us that we can learn from and say, oh, how did God, how serious is that sin? How serious is stealing? What kinds of penalties should stealing have that we can then use to understand our own lives and context so that we can apply it in our own way? So that layer is called the judicial layer of the law. So there's a moral layer, always applies. A ceremonial layer changes over time as God directs. And then a judicial layer, which is wisdom for us as we want to apply that first one. So those are different layers in the law of Moses itself. So as Christians, we're not directly under the Mosaic law as a covenant. We're under grace. We're in Christ. All authority is given to him as our head, not Moses as our head. But within that, we can go to the law of Moses and we can see the moral layer, which is connected to universal human nature. And we can see a ceremonial layer, which teaches us through symbols and images and that can be changed when God chooses. And then we can see a judicial layer, which has particular penalties for Israel and which we use as wisdom as we try to apply the laws to ourselves. That's how we're going to try to approach the law now. Second thing I wanted to do this morning is simply talk briefly about the Ten Commandments themselves. You can divide the Ten Commandments up structurally in two ways, okay, two different ways. The first is based on the way Jesus divides them up in the Gospel of Matthew. In uh, Matthew 22, Jesus says there are two great, the two greatest commandments. You guys probably know what they are, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor and yourself. On these hang all of the law and prophets. Everything boils down to those two. 
And so what theologians said is, hey, you know what? If we look at the Ten Commandments, do you know what we notice? They break down right along those lines. The first four commandments have to do with love for God, and the last six have to do with love for neighbor. The first four they call the first table. That's if, you, if you're reading on this in the history of theology, the first table of the law. And the second they call the second table of the law. So, no other gods before me, no carved images, don't bear the Lord's name in vain and keep the Sabbath. Those are about loving God, especially. Uh, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet. Those are mainly about how you love your neighbor. And so that's one way that we could divide the law. Four about love for God, six about love for neighbor. But there's another way to divide them as well. If you notice when Pastor Jonathan was reading, those first five took up a really long time. And those last five were like machine gun bullets. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Just real brief. Here's why. The first five, all of them refer to the name of the Lord. Yahweh appears in the first five, in each one. He doesn't appear in any of the last five. And in the first five, we're given reasons, motives for our obedience, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land, right? So there's reasons, there's motives for obedience in the first five, not in the second. And so that's something that we want to just note and think about why is that? Why does God do that as we move through the commandments? That's one thing is you can divide them in a couple of ways. Second thing, most of the commandments are given in a negative form. You shall not do something, but we should understand that the commandments have both a negative and a positive force, a dimension, something that they forbid and something that they require, okay? And so think about, you, and we wanna get both sides of it as we look at them, not just think of it as a very narrow thing, but in a broader way. You shall have no other gods before me means worship Yahweh alone. See that, negative, positive. You shall not make a carved image, worship Yahweh in the way that he requires. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall honor the name of the Lord in your words and your conduct. Remember the Sabbath. That's a positive side, actually. So that was actually like positive sides over here. Remember the Sabbath. You shall not labor or make others labor on the Lord's day. Honor your father and mother. Again, that's a positive. Don't disobey or respect those who are over you. You shall not murder. Respect and protect human life. You shall not commit adultery, respect and protect marriage and chastity. You shall not steal, respect and protect other people's property. You shall not bear false witness, respect and protect the truth and the integrity of society. You shall not cover your neighbor's house, wife, etc. Be content with what God gives to you. So all of the commandments have a negative positive. So as we work through and explore them, we're going to look both at the negative and the positive side. And that means that these are not narrow commands about very specific actions, but instead address the major areas of human life in all of its dimensions. Like think, think about what's represented here. You've got worship. You've got representation. You've got work and labor. You've got life. You've got marriage. You've got property. You've got the integrity of society. And you've got the satisfaction of the human heart. All of those are addressed in 10 brief words, but that's basically all of human life right there. And so we want to think about those. And that, that also means that we're not just looking at external obedience. God is not just concerned with your behavior. 
He's concerned with your heart. When Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount and he expounds upon the Mosaic law, he's not giving them new information like, hey, in the Old Testament, God was totally fine if you just didn't kill anybody, but if you got angry with them, that was totally fine. As long Anger was totally fine with God as long as you didn't murder. Lust was totally fine with God as long as you didn't act upon it. No, 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 no. Jesus was given the proper interpretation of the law of Moses itself. He was giving, the Pharisees had messed it up. They tried to take it and say, hey, it only applies in this narrow way. Just, we gotta be real technical. As long as you don't do this, it's fine. No, no, no. Jesus says, it's about all of you. It's about your actions and your heart. It's about what you do and what you think and feel. God cares about all of it. And so as we work through the commandments, we wanna understand them in their breadth, all of human life, and in their depth. Actions down to the heart. Fourth thing here on Ten Commandments, all of them are written in the second person, masculine, singular. So in other words, it doesn't say, y'all shall not steal, okay? Which is how in Texas would say it if we were talking to groups of people. Y'all shall not steal. No, no, it says you, singular, you shall not steal. And it's given in the masculine form. And so we wanna ask why? I think there are two reasons. First, the commands are addressed first to the heads of household in Israel. In, in Moses' day, that's who's the object of the commands. There's a particular obligation directed to the heads of household to lead the way in obedience to God. So you notice in that last commandment, the 10th commandment, it forbids coveting your neighbor's wife, but doesn't say anything about coveting your neighbor's husband. And this is not because women get a free pass and it's totally cool for you to covet your neighbor's husband, but simply because the expectation is, is that the men would lead out as the heads of household in obedience. But the other reason, and I think the more important reason, is that God puts them in the second person singular masculine form is because of who Israel is. Who is Israel? You've, we've seen this for 19 chapters. Israel is God's firstborn son. Remember when he said to Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn son. Let my son go. Why? That he may serve me. That he may serve me. So now here, they've been let go. Mighty hand, outstretched arm. They've been let go. Here they are. And now they need to serve their father. They need to serve their father. Now that the son has been let go, the father will teach his son, you, second person, singular, masculine, what he is like and call his son to follow in his steps. And that leads to this final introductory note. Here's how we're going to read the Ten Commandments. These are instructions of a loving father to his firstborn son. These commandments are a father saying to his son, here's what I'm like. Here's what I care about. Here's what I value. Here's what I love. Here's what I hate. Here's what I prioritize. And I'm telling you this, son, because I want you to be like me, to resemble me, to reflect me, to share my priorities, to share my values, to share my loves, to share my hates. And so when we reflect on the Ten Commandments, we want to understand the heart and the character of our father as he instructs his son how to live for our good and his glory. And that brings us to the end, which isn't only to the table, but also to the font here. Israel was God's firstborn son, delivered from bondage in Egypt. But the true Israel, 
the fulfillment of Israel, God's ultimate and true firstborn son is Jesus. He is the one who resembles and reflects and obeys his father's commandments perfectly from top to bottom, from front to back. Not only that, he is the head of his household, the church. He leads the way in obedience. And as our covenant head, he obeys on our behalf and becomes our righteousness before God so that our failures don't cast us from God's presence, but we're covered by the obedience of Jesus. And so as we approach the Ten Commandments, we're not coming to them directly. We're coming to them through Jesus, who is the supreme lawgiver of the new covenant. We seek to observe all that he commanded us. And more than that, Jesus is our elder brother. And so we seek to become like the father by seeking to become like the son. He is the model for our obedience. God wants us to be conformed to his image so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. And as God's firstborn son, we look to Jesus for the strength to fulfill God's law through love, loving our father with all we have, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And he offers us that strength. He confirms that strength to us in the gospel, which we are now going to represent in the two ways that God told us to represent it. The two symbolic laws that we have in the, in the new covenant are right here today. There's a symbolic law that shows us entrance into God's people, and there's a symbolic law that shows us how we maintain as God's people, a symbolic law of baptism and a symbolic law of the Lord's Supper. Pray with me. Father, I realize that was a lot. There's lots of categories there, and I hope that this would be the sort of sermon that would bear fruit over time as it can be reflected and meditated upon as we come to these different commandments and apply it to different, make it more concrete. My hope and prayer God, is that uh, we would have clear categories so that then we could see what do you expect from us? That's the bottom line where we want to get to is, Lord, what do you want from us as your people? What do you require of us as your people today in the 21st century? And we want that for our own sake and for the sake of our witness to the world so that we can call them to become part of God's people, part of God's household in his firstborn son, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we celebrate the gospel of Jesus now in baptism and the table, would you dwell among us and encourage and strengthen our faith through these symbols? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.